Welcome to the Osprey podcast. I have to say I'm really excited about this one. Today we're joined by one of Britain's greatest ever female athletes with two Olympic golds and nine world championships to her name. Victoria Pendleton is an absolute fireball of energy and she also happens to love a good natter which rather helps in a format like this. She's got a lot to share so let's get straight into it. I'm your host Marcus Brown and this is the Osprey podcast. Victoria Pendleton, the legend, the titan. How you doing? Oh, How's lockdown? That was a that was a bit much. Thank you. I appreciate was that. It? I don't think so. An <laughs> understatement of anything. Oh well, well, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. I'm all good. Thanks. <laughs> how's how's lockdown treating you? Have you been doing all right with that? I actually don't mind lockdown too much. I must be quite an antisocial person. Uh, I mean, I enjoy speaking to my mum on the phone. And I would love to give her a cuddle. I miss that. But ultimately, um, I quite like pottering around solo. So, and also, it's given me a chance to focus on my training. So that's a good thing. Nice, nice. I found that it's kind of given me more focus. I was I was very spread in my training focus beforehand. I was trying to do everything, and now it's just like yeah, cardio. exactly. <laughs> it, it makes you appreciate the time you have to exercise and also prioritize it, which I think is important. I think mm. so many people don't prioritize their exercise. It's like something they have to squeeze in when actually looking after your body and looking after your your health and well-being physically and mentally it's quite an important thing it should be very high on the list I think a lot of people perhaps appreciate that more now because they've been allowed mm. to prioritize fitness and and getting out and yeah. doing some exercise and and encouraged to yeah and I think I've seen I mean I've definitely seen more people out and about walking or cycling and uh, I think that's a positive thing who knows whether it will continue it'll be interesting to see so I, I want to start way back at the beginning um you're someone that, that has lived a lot before if we wind it back before the sort of plethora of achievements and the the world stage and all of that did you always want to be an athlete mm, no um i wanted to be a vet actually as oh. a kid and it was you know, I realized at school quite early on that I wasn't quite smart enough to be a vet. So I thought maybe a veterinary nurse or maybe I'll go to like agricultural college. Um, but ultimately, I was just really good at sport and I just really enjoyed it. It was something I excelled at. And I was always encouraged to do more by my PE teachers, but not but not ever in a sense that there was a career opportunity in it, just purely because you know, will you do the cross country? Will you do the county cross country for the school? And I'm like, yeah, okay. Do you want to be the captain? <laughs> yeah. Do you want to do the 800 and the 1500? Because no one else wants to do it. Yeah, yeah, I'll do that. But it was kind of, it was, it was just something that I had always enjoyed. And, you know, I was quite good at it. And when you're a kid, you like doing stuff you're good at. And I wasn't particularly academic. So, PE was one of my favourite subjects. And I, I think because I'd grown up playing a lot of sport and doing a lot of cycling, I mean, my dad had me on the back of the tandem, age six, wooden blocks, um, screwed them the pedals so that my little legs could reach them, reach the cranks. Oh. Couldn't get tandem falling up back in the day at the back. Um, I was daddy's <laughs> little engine. There you are. There's a nugget for you. That's adorable. Um I'm not quite sure how much I did contribution contribute to the you know the the powering of the tandem, but I was still there. I was there, you know. I was there, and I was giving You're it giving it well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, was, so was he the the sort of guiding force that took you in the in the direction of cycling? Then yeah. So my dad was a very keen cyclist. I mean, he didn't race in, internationally, but he um, definitely was very active in the the hill climb, the road race, and grass track cycling and track cycling so he was always very keen on it since he was a young man he's mm. something he really found a lot of joy from so we all cycled and we'd take our bikes on holiday and we'd cycle around a lot and it was very much part of the family and everybody did it so my my granddad was and um, my nan were also keen cyclists and it was 
something I thought everybody did, to be honest. I it, it I wasn't until I was about 11 when my teacher was questioning me about how far I'd cycled and didn't believe me. Um, and I was like, I, oh, yeah, I said, I said it went, we did 40 miles on Sunday. And she was like, you mean 14? And I was like, no, 14. <laughs> she, she thought I was a complete liar. But um, Amazing. it was it was just, yeah, it was, it was kind of a... Yeah, it was very much a, a family thing. So we were all encouraged mm. to race when we could. And I think I got my right, first racing license age nine, so 1989, and I raced every wow. year until 2012. From age nine? Yes. So That's racing. very young. <laughs> yeah, there wasn't many people in the age category. Sometimes we'd turn up a race and it would be like my brother and I, that's it. <laughs> so <Brilliant. laughs> I would be like, oh, okay, how many different races can we put on for you two? Um <laughs> So it was, yeah, but the, the, I mean, the scene has grown so much now in terms of the yeah. youth being able to participate and, and having decent competition. But we, yeah, yeah. We, we all enjoyed racing. Were you earning from winning those races at all? Well, or? you used to get some good, decent pocket money out of the grass track racing, which is one of the reasons <laughs> I quite liked it. Um, especially when I turned senior. So after 16, you race with the men. And which you know, might seem a bit daunting because there weren't many women doing it, maybe two or three mm. regularly. And if you went to a national championship, you might get a field of six or seven. Um, and how many guys? And, and just the guys, it might be 30 plus. So <sighs> so you kind of, you go in and get in a race, a, a race with the guys and, um, and it'll be a handicap race. So because, you know, you'd have scratch races and a handicap race and the starter would take one look at me and feel really sorry that I was back there. So he'd give me a few meters and then he'd look at me and give me a few more. And then I'm like, right, if I pedal really, really fast, I don't want to get caught. I might just pick up a placing here. And the men hated it. They were like, she always gets a ridiculous handicap. How are we supposed to catch her? And I'll be like, don't want to get caught by a big, like a dust cloud of guys with their elbows out chasing me down. I was like, just make it to the end. So <laughs> it was, it's quite a motivation and, and I could earn a lot more than the paper round doing it. You know, sometimes I could earn, I mean, it doesn't seem that much like come away from a race meeting and have earned like 30 pounds or 40 pounds. I was like, that's a lot of newspapers that. That is. For one for one day's work. Jeez, the newspaper agents would have made a colossal loss. On <laughs> yeah. So that was a bit of motivation. So so you were competing from from very small then and and you were clearly kind of I suppose in a way you were sort of raised into this machine mm. um this this kind of infrastructure of of competing. Mm. There I've I've always wondered being in a training for the Olympics there must be some like really specific, slightly crazy techniques. Do they do they make you do anything strange and unusual in your training, like or in the or in the rehab or anything? Mm, I mean, the thing is, I probably couldn't tell you because most of the stuff I would consider very normal, and you might be going, "What?" Okay, like, yeah. work out what would. I mean. You pretty much do as you're told all the time. So you have nutritionists telling you what to eat. Coaches are telling you what to do in terms of ex, um, um, in terms of track work. Tactically, you're told which shoulder you can look over when. Um, wow. In the gym, you know, every single lift is like shoulders over the bar, do this, do that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So constantly input of inf- information. This is how much wow. sleep you should get. This is how many protein shakes you need to eat in a day. Have you got your leg warmers? It's cold out there. And it's like, I'm 30. I think I can decide whether I need leg warmers. <laughs> Um, but it's kind of it's very much you know, it's a very controlled environment and very you know they wrap you in cotton wool a little bit so you know like we had our mm. own beds to take with us to put on top of the hotel beds so that the mattress felt the same and oh, wow. they were super hypoallergenic sheets and we had a sleep guy come around and kind of fit us with a, a certain combination of mattress pads so that it suited our sleeping position wow. so i had to go in a room and they're like so just just lie down how you would normally go to sleep and you're like uh, <laughs> in the office um 
okay, I'm poor sleep on this side or that side, and they'd measure your weight and put this bed together so that you could always have a good night's sleep when you went to competition because obviously recovery and freshness is going to make a big yeah, yeah. performance. Uh, so yeah, it was- wow. <laughs> It's pretty, pretty uh, all-encompassing then. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> as you as you'd expect. Yeah, I mean, no wow. stone left unturned. Mm. I I was um, I actually just today ordered Steve Peters' Chimp Paradox. Book. Oh, cool! Yeah, because I, I I saw a couple of interviews and, and was like, I need to find out more about this guy. Um, so, how did his um, his work kind of plug into that machine that oh, we're describing. Uncle Steve. Now I, mean, <laughs> I honestly I spoke to him just I have an uncle he, called Steve. Do you? He, yeah I, I do. <laughs> yeah I I absolutely adore that man. The on the first time meeting him I knew you could just sense kind of the generosity of his spirit in some ways, which I know sounds like a little bit hippie, but he has a kindness about him. And he puts everybody first, you know, like he he will do everything he can to, to make you feel better. And he was brought into the team actually very early in my sort of professional career. And I remember meeting him in Switzerland because I was training there, sort of I maybe about 23 and going towards uh, Athens Olympics, to that, which was 2004. And I just sort of made it to the senior team and they thought, well, you might as well, if you qualify, we can get you qualified, then you should go and, and experience it. And and I was in pieces because I was like, oh, my God, I'm not good enough for this. I'm not ready for this. I'm freaking out and you've made a mistake and I'm not that talented. And why am I here? And, oh, gosh, you're going to be so and I'm full of anxiety and a lack of confidence mm. in myself. And Steve came to meet me. I burst into tears, cried for about 10 minutes because he nailed my character through the tea he's like sometimes you feel like this and you say this and you and I was like yeah 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 can you read minds (laughs) I think he might be able to read minds but it really helped him because he gave me some pointers there and then that have stuck with me you know ever since and having somebody there with such a wealth of knowledge of experience of how the mind works and how to control your thoughts and how to um, organize them and understand them and accept them is a really special thing and he is a genius he can simplify it to to uh, you know in a way that even can be explained to children now so he's got those kids books and they teach it in schools and stuff but I couldn't have done what I've done and I couldn't have achieved what I've achieved without him mm. he really gave me a much stronger confidence in myself and he gave me some really valuable tools that helped me navigate all kinds of situations as a human being it's not just about sport it was like making you as a person happier more settled and more understanding and therefore going into your work domain which was sport at the highest level more prepared to deal with it and and I really appreciate that I know I feel very very blessed to have had that opportunity so his I, I haven't, obviously I've only just all of the books. I haven't really got to read much of it. Um, I've, I've seen a couple of bits online and like I've watched him talking and there was a great uh, moment where he said that you, so he, he describes this inner chimp, mm, yeah. which are the kinds of behaviors we don't want to be leaning into. Yeah. And he said that you immediately asked, how do I kill the chimp? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it's, I think he also described my trip as more like a gorilla as well, which was a bit like, well, okay. <laughs> um, but the whole idea of the, of the chimp is kind of instinctive, very predictable, not necessarily constructive all the time mm. behaviors, which are in there for survival purposes, you know, fight or flight. You know, you're at competition, you're super nervous and you don't want to be there, but you do want to be there because you trained like four years, eight years, your whole life to be there. Of course you want to be there, but the whole idea of you have the anxiety overwhelming you and you're like, oh God, I just want to. Mm. Or, or just, you know, getting very emotional when pressure's on high because it's like, you you know, it's a, it's a frustration with trying to be logical, but also feeling in turmoil at the same time. And um, yeah, my chimp is full of doubt and insecurity just generally. And uh, I think 
understanding that my responses sometimes could do with some work. Um, that's an underestimate, an under kind of. Um, <laughs> it's just kind understatement. Of, yeah, understatement. That's a complete understatement. Uh, I I kind of appreciated that Steve provided me with an opportunity to train my mind. Mm. As an athlete, you train your body every day to the best of your ability. But the concept of training your mind equally or giving it the time it deserves and the effort it deserves is still quite a, a you know relatively new thing, despite everyone going on about 80-20 since the beginning of time. You know, 80% mental, 20% physical. So I was like, yeah. well, hang on a minute. We spend no time training our, our brains, but we spend all the time on our bodies. Hmm. So I really grabbed the opportunity to, to work with Steve with both hands because it wasn't mandatory. He was there in the office if you needed him, in Steve's office. Um, if you wanted him he was there if you didn't want him that's cool so it wasn't forced upon you he gave group chats now and again just to sort of say you know this this is just I'm going to run through some things for everybody and if you're interested in speaking to you more about it that's cool Um, but never forced upon you and I was like everyone else who doesn't take this up must be crazy because I really want to win Mm. and I want to do everything so it's I I find it really interesting that it is something I've seen in myself, actually, that you, you're you describing yourself as both being full of doubt and full of, um, you know, questioning yourself a lot. Mm. But at the same time, knowing you're really capable, wanting to, you know, having ambition, mm. wanting to achieve those things. Mm. It's kind of, it seems almost contradictory, doesn't it? It does. I mean, it, it's strange because I kind of, realize now you know the the main thing is I think looking back I never really identified my strengths I just focused on my weaknesses that performance even when I won I didn't win by enough Mm. and that's how I felt oh I should have won that was you know I nearly messed that up and I did that bit wrong and and I just focus on purely on the bits I did wrong because I wanted so desperately to be better to be Mm. to be the very best I could be and my expectations were super high unrealistic in most instances um, and that's just the way I function. People be like, oh, you know, you're so emotional and this and that. And it's like, yeah, but the thing is, I want it so badly. I want to be successful so badly. My heart is on my sleeve and my heart drives me. Like if it didn't mean something to me, I wouldn't go to these lengths to put myself in this level of suffering if it didn't mean something to me. Like I yeah. want to be good I want to be good at it and to be good you work hard and I think that's something that my dad always instilled in me you know you have to be prepared to go further than the next person you know when it's tipping it down the rain outside and it's windy and you've got to go and do a training ride and you're like and then you think well the other girls I'm going to be racing against they're already out there training I need to get out there yeah 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 and I used to love it when the rain was streaming down dripping off your face and you can't see anything like and you're just sort of powering along and you don't see anyone else. And you're like, yeah, you know it. I'm out here. Where are, where are all you fair weather cyclists right now? Where are you? <laughs> I'll beat you. So for me, the, the training, how I approach my mental training, how I approach my physical training was the, was the only way I could gain confidence in, in my own performances. Like I couldn't have done mm. any more and therefore whatever will be, will be. And I, hope it's a good performance um one one thing that i've always asked i wanted to ask any olympian is do you ever tire of the media questions immediately after racing no because i've found myself thinking like leave them alone man yeah (laughs) just let them have their moment for a bit we'll talk to them later do you know what i mean yeah i mean sometimes you get asked some really really kind of some difficult questions. Um, you're gasping for breath. You don't know what's just happened. Everything's just happened. It's good. It's bad. It's whatever. And someone asks you a question and you're just rambling on. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's something you have to do. I think you accept oh, – well, I personally, as a professional athlete, accepted the fact that that, that is part of the job. Like you have to mm. give everybody their time and equal enthusiasm and honesty and openness and get through that because that's – what you're there for, you're providing a source of entertainment and they're there to report it. So 
sometimes you get asked some questions that make you kind of want to just literally stick pins in your eyes. Like, <laughs> I've just lost a major championship by a few millimetres. They'd be like, oh, how does that feel? And you're like... Oh, <laughs> yes, yeah. Those are exactly the questions I'm talking about. How do you feel about that? How that just went? bad to be honest with you how would you feel (laughs) and you're trying to be like well you know sometimes you win sometimes you lose and you kind of have these rehearsed answers in your head because inside killing yourself you're like oh I hate myself so much right now what could I have done better what could I have done differently oh and you're really frustrated and you're trying to be like yeah so sometimes you win sometimes you lose today wasn't my day (laughs) I'll just train harder and come back stronger next time. Yeah, it is hard. It is sometimes hard. Okay, so, yeah, thank you for answering that. I (laughs) I feel like I've just, in the back of my head, I've always wanted someone to confirm it. (laughs) Basically, going into a competition, um, and actually most of the challenges that I've done, you know you're going to speak to the press, whether it's good, bad, or ugly. So you make sure that you have a few key phrases in your head that you will Hmm. just deliver. So when it, if it goes wrong, for example, if today goes really badly, this is what I'm going to say. If today goes really well, this is what I'm going to say. Because then it allows you a bit of structure in that madness when your head's a big fog and mm, you're like tapping sure. and you're sweating and you just come off the track to be able to give something that's even vaguely coherent. Yeah, and I think just a little bit of preparation to... A little bit of prep, mm. yeah. So... You moved, you moved away from cycling. You retired from cycling in in glorious... 20... I don't know what the word is. Yeah. Glorious 2012. That's, That's it. That's um, On home turf as well. Yeah. How did the, the journey into jockeying start? So I've been ambling around thinking that I was going to enjoy life as a retired athlete, gardening, you know, keeping fit, which isn't a concept for me because I'd always had a training plan. So for the first time in my life, I was Mm. master of my own training, which was kind of new and exciting and started running. Uh, Yeah. That must've been weird having the, that machine we we mentioned just suddenly having that stripped away. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you think that it's going to be really amazing. Oh, I'm going to be so free to do whatever I want. It's going to be liberating. I'm going to feel so kind of, you know, I'm going to feel so differently. I'm going to feel so free and happy and yay. And then you sort of go, oh, what am I going to do today? What am I going to do tomorrow? I haven't got a <laughs> training pro- program and I feel a little bit lost and who am I? And and what did it all mean? And all these things start, you know, you start trying to analyze what the hell is going on. Yeah, It's, a tr- it's, a, it's difficult, but in some ways, when I say difficult, maybe it's just different and it's just kind of finding ways to navigate it. And I was very lucky that after ambling along for a year or so that um, a PR agency approached me with this ridiculous idea. Would I like to become a jockey? Now, I'd never thought of becoming a jockey before. It never crossed my mind. I love horses. I've always wanted to learn how to ride horses. I've sat on a couple of ponies and a donkey and been led (laughs) as a kid, but I don't really know how to do it. So I was like, wow, I love animals. I've always loved animals do you want to train to become a jockey in 12 and a half months to ride at Cheltenham Festival? And I was like, that is crazy. That is the most crazy thing I've ever been asked to do. And I've been asked to do some silly things like dress up from Dorothy from the Wizard of Oz and skip down a gold brick road. Um, <laughs> age 28. And so, I've, you know, it's, it's pretty ridiculous and dangerous. And then I kind of pondered over it for a couple of days and then I was like, yeah, I think I'd quite like to give that a go. I tell you what, I'll tell them I'll have a two-week trial of horses, horse riding lessons, and then I'll give them my answer because you don't know unless you try. Anyway, I went for my first lesson with a world-renowned equestrian, I would say guru, wouldn't oh, be wow. putting it lightly. Uh, someone money can't buy. So the idea of him teaching me how to ride was it was like somebody giving you a winning lottery ticket. It was like, you serious? Yogi Breisner is going to teach me to ride. 
Like his name is Yogi Breisner yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah, so he he won gold medal for the Olympic Sweden. He sounds like a guru. Yeah, he was the chef to keep for the British um, equestrian team for many years, and it's a it's a sport. Obviously, we're strong in at the Olympics. Generally, we pick up medals in equestrian events. Yeah, so very well known. He also works in racing, teaching horses to jump um, with or to um, teach jockeys how to ride and assess them. So he has a big involvement with racing because he loves racing too. So it couldn't be a better coach. They reel out this huge horse. I look at him and go, bloody hell, how do I get up there to start with? And they're like, what we do with the jockey is we just leg you up. So just bend your leg, bounce and spring up. And I was like, and then I sat on this horse called the secret weapon. Amazing. um, Who was the champion, big ginger horse. And um, big eventing horse owned by Chris King and he, you know, his, his beloved pet because he retired him and kept him in training. And I'm up there and I'm like, my heart is racing. This is a long way off the ground. It moves in a weird old way, like all the dimensions the horse moves. I loved it. I was terrified and I loved it. And I went back for lessons every day for a week and was like, this feels right really right I'm gonna do it and everybody was like it's so dangerous it can't be done and I was like <laughs> I'm gonna give it a go I'm gonna give it a good go and then and practice you know I'm gonna take it very seriously it's gonna become my main priority I was um you know during the the main body of my preparation for it I was riding out for a racing yard um I was riding like four or five horses every morning then I was having lessons in the afternoon and I was taking any ride I could get. If someone said, do you want to go for a hack on my, you know, Dobbin? I was like, yeah, I'll do that. So I just rode as many horses, 92 different horses before Cheltenham came around. I'd raced in 30 races. So within 12 and a half months, I'd absolutely. Nice full throttle. <laughs> I even learned the lingo, which was interesting for me because they, there's a lot of, there's a lot of jargon there in, in, in Go on, give us some. Well, the thing is, like, even from this, I don't, you know, I used to, you know, if, if there was a big race on the television, I'd watch it. I might put a little bit down, been to Ascot before, seen some flat racing. But, like, when people are talking about, you know, the going and, and give it, a, give the horse a, bit, a good bit, I was like, give the horse a good bit. A good bit. So you're doing an effort on a horse and you go, do it, no, a real good bit. So what's the difference between a good bit and a real good and a bit? A real good bit. <laughs> you kind of learn things, and they'll be like, uh, "Yeah, you know, he." Um, let me think. Lots of horsey terms, even just racing terminology. You know, talking about trips and going, and you're like, "Yeah, the trip. That's the distance of the race, Victoria." Okay. Oh. And um, so yeah, <laughs> I think he's got a good. Tri- he's got the trip. He's got the trip. Yeah, so the horse has got enough gas to do the distance, right? Um, a horse being a stayer, being a horse being, um, for example, the way they move is, you know, he's a bit, he plats or he's got, he's a bit dish, he dishes a bit, he hangs on the left, he drops the shoulder. All these kind of things are like, okay, okay. You see in stride, what is a stride and how do you see it? You don't. Okay, you know, and then sort of asking for a stride, going long, asking for a stride early, pecking on landing. If someone pecks on landing, you know, the head goes down, out the side door. Yeah, that happens a lot. But no, it's it was a lot to a lot to take in, and I just tried to absorb as much as possible from every experience. And I really enjoyed hanging around the horsey racing crowd because I must admit. It wasn't really it's something I'd been involved with before or even thought about, but I didn't think that they would be my kind of people. You think, oh, horses, they're quite posh and, you know, they won't be very relatable. <laughs> but actually, training horses is a really tough occupation because you can't necessarily guarantee their performance. They can't tell you how they're feeling. They break down very easily. You know, they're not, there are a lot of animals and there's a lot of meat there on four very skinny legs. Mm. So, you know, it's moving very fast around very tight corners. And you're like, well, it's kind of, it is dangerous and they, they are fragile. Um, And I imagine the, the connection between the horse and the rider must be 
a big part of it, no? Oh, I mean, massively. Sometimes you get on a horse and you just get on with it and it gets you. And sometimes you get on a horse and for the life of you will not pay a single ounce of attention to what you're trying to ask <laughs> to do. Because a lot of people would be like, well, you're, you know, you're in control of it. I was like, got 600 kg with a brain the size of a walnut <laughs> that's how we you think i'm in control <laughs> it's a walnut and you you can't force it to do you can't force it to pick its legs up and jump how are you going to do that so what you do is you give it confidence you give it direction you try and find out what makes it tick. Some horses need a bit of, you know, you need to sort of get a bit angry with them in terms of the way you speak to them is sharp. And, and some horses, you need to be like, come on then, come on. You're in control. You are all in control. I'm just sat here and let them think for themselves and then they get happier and perkier. So you kind of have to tailor the way you respond to them, yeah. which is a really fun thing. And sometimes you just don't get on. Sometimes you just find a partnership that works and it's glorious. It's um, it's spiritual. It's what it is. Don't feel like that about me, bike. Just saying. <laughs> Don't worry, the show's not over yet. The best is still to come. But I wanted to let you know very quickly that we'd like to invite you to take part in the Osprey 14 Challenge. Inspired by Osprey Ambassador Nims Persia summiting the 14 highest peaks in the world, if you complete 14 days of exercise and share your pictures with us, you'll be in with a chance to win an amazing multi-sport prize bundle. The challenge ends on the 14th of June. Just head over to our Instagram account at Osprey Europe to get involved. And now, back to the show. Okay, so at some point we go from jockeying to attempting Everest. Yes. Can we fill in the gap? So I carry on racing after to after Cheltenham and I race another season point to point break my ankle think it's a sprain Oof. walk around on it on a, for a week then decide oh. to go for an, uh, a scan that was annoying and um spent the rest of the season thinking oh, maybe I maybe this is maybe I should what, need a, a different horse because he's a bit feisty this one and I might fall off again and exercising racehorses enjoying it and then I was sat down at the Goodwood Festival of Speed <laughs> and next to Ben Fogel on the on the table plan, which is a complete chance. And um, we have a chat and he goes, oh, you did really well. That Cheltenham thing was incredible because his wife, Marina, knows a bit about horses. So he was like, yeah. Okay. He had a bit of context for, for what, I'd, what I'd achieved. And yeah. I'm like, oh, thanks, Ben. I really appreciate that. Um, and he's a great guy. Like, Everyone's always asked me, is Ben Bogle as nice as he sees, seems on the television? A hundred percent. He is a really lovely, interesting guy. Um, very thoughtful, very considerate. And he basically said, I'm thinking of doing a challenge. Would you be interested? And I was like, yeah. Yeah, I would actually, Ben. I'd love a new challenge. Um, we, took, we went backwards and forwards with a few ideas. And then he sort of came to me with, right, Everest. I've always wanted to do it. I wouldn't want to ask you directly, would you do it with me? But if you wanted to do it, would we you could do, do it, it together. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah, I would. And he was like, brilliant. And then the whole thing just tootled along. We started mountaineering and learning all the skills and they got Kenton Cool involved. And yeah, that was, we spent 18 months preparing to get up to, to Everest. And it was it's a really tough sport mountaineering. And I think yeah. everything I've done is so fast and adrenaline fueled and like, you know, there's a lot going on and it's over very quickly. Mm. Mountaineering is about sustaining prolonged suffering <laughs> and uh, danger, which is a very different combination. And it, yeah. for me, I found that a really interesting thing to kind of learn how to do because you suffer for hours just shuffling along at a slow speed, feeling like you're going nowhere. And there's a lot of time for your brain to do all kinds of things. And I think this was something I was like, this is, you know, it's, it, I appreciate this new challenge. It's very different from the last one, but still something that's going to push me. So, yeah, I mean, everything was going well <laughs> until I get to camp two. So, um, you, you know, you would have heard about me not, making making it to the summit and it was like it was a bit of, you know I was very disappointed obviously that I didn't get a chance to summit with Ben 
But we arrived, we arrived at base camp and they were already fixing the ropes at camp three, which for that time of the season, like early season, because we were trying to get up there early, first thing in May. So 8th, 19th of May, I think, was was our preferred summit day. And sometime around that week, if it was going to open, mm. that's when we were going to go for. So the training had been worked back from there. And we arrive at base camp and they're already fixing ropes. And we're like, wow, if the season, if the weather says the season's going to be early and you may get only three days to summit in, in, in a season, we need to start moving. And uh, we prepared as much as we could. And I went for a rotation, which is like a practice climb. You go up to camp one, you come back down, you go up to camp one, then you go to camp two, and then you come back down. Because you have to come down the mountain to acclimatize. You can't acclimatize mm. if you stay put because it's such extreme right. altitude, your body cannot heal itself. So you can't adapt unless you come down. Wow. So I went to camp two, uh, felt a bit like it was it was hard work. It um that day between camp one and camp two is a really big open plateau that goes on forever. It's kind of like a nightmare because you stop and look back and you feel like you haven't moved. <laughs> you look forward, you're like, I can't look any closer. And made it through, felt okay. Went to uh, camp two, um, the, all the tents set up. And I just started to feel a little bit woozy. I was a little bit uncoordinated. I tripped over going into the mess tent and like I stumbled in and they were like, oh, hmm. find yourself. And I was like, oh, that's <laughs> and then I couldn't do the zip on my jacket. And I was like, oh, I just can't seem to, I was struggling with these tasks. And I, you don't really yeah. notice it in yourself because you, hmm. because it's just kind of being like a bit drunk. Like you had a couple of beers, like kind of right. a bit like, wee on an empty stomach, feeling a bit like, but not really bad. You're not suffering. It's not like, Oh my God, hypoxia. But they were, they were checking my stats and they dropped really low and they were like, gosh, I think you need to sit down you need to get on some oxygen. And I was like, Oh, I mean, and then I instantly took the oxygen and felt so much better. And I was like, wow, maybe I was in a bad place. And the numbers that my saturation was showing and pulse oximeter, not very, accurate it's just a clip you put on your finger that measures your oxygen saturation um was in like 30 uh which would put me in intensive care if i was in you know at sea level i was still functioning but they were like this is a dangerously low level and unfortunately Mm. that was you need to go back down so i carried the oxygen tank and had it there as i walked back down the mountain um So I walked back down to base camp on the oxygen and we had to have a long, hard think about whether I was going to be able to continue because I wasn't adapting quick enough. I couldn't necessarily keep up with Ben and Kenton's plans to summit. So this tough decision had to be made that my health was more important than continuing. I needed needed another like two weeks, which is what we anticipated, but we didn't have it. A month would have been even better, but we didn't have the time. So it was like, I mean, it seems like it is just a roll of the dice as well. Mm. Like the people that get affected by it and the people that don't, it just seems so random. Yeah. I mean, you can be super fit. And I know a lot of people, military guys who go up struggle. It's almost being, it's almost sometimes you see people who look slightly overweight, who may have been smokers do better because their cardio is with it. And also, when you're when you're super fit and you maybe you're an athlete or you come from an athletic background or you're you know you're you're a marine or something like that, yeah, you have an ability to put yourself in a hurt locker very easily. Yeah, very easy for you to do. It's something that's very natural for you to do. And one thing on the mountain you cannot do is go anywhere near your limit. You have to constantly work so submaximally. And sometimes when you're on a mission, you get in a zone. You're like, yeah, yeah, I'm good. To an average person, you're actually really overperforming. But right. you, you think you're you think you're going steady, but you're really, you know, your perception of what steady is is a bit messed up. So <laughs> you know, that can be a big problem if you if you're a fit and trained individual. You need to mm. really take it so easy and That's interesting. it's hard to do. It's, it, that really shows the, you know, the <clears throat> the fact that mountaineering is just such a unique 
yeah. activity compared to everything else. It is. It's about patience and sort of discipline. And I would consider myself quite a disciplined person, but patience, yeah, that's something I'm definitely not naturally good at. I like fast and furious. So, yeah, I would definitely like to give it another go. And I hope that yeah. I will have an opportunity to go to the Himalayas one day and get that one ticked off. Hell yeah. Mm, yeah. I just need more time. And that's, you know, doable. Yeah, you seem to uh, enjoy proving people wrong, even when that's uh, Mother Nature. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, you know, when Mother Nature, for example, it, it, the weather window provided an opportunity that my body could not adapt in time for, and that's something I can't change. So in terms of, you know, I was disappointed, but ultimately I very much understood that mm. I made the right decision. So for me- It's it, the cards you dealt, isn't it? You can't- You can't. Mother Nature will always win, hands down. Yeah. So I'm very happy to respect Sagamatha and what she chose to do. And that was yeah, <laughs> me safe. And actually, interestingly enough, a couple of the oxygen, the new oxygen masks, which the teams had taken up, failed. And if mine had failed as well, there wouldn't have been enough spare ones to go round. So in some ways, I think... You know, you might call it fate. That was exactly the word I was about to use. <laughs> you might call it fate that that happened because if yeah. there hadn't been enough to go around, it would have mean somebody would have been climbing or descending without oxygen. And the Sherpas are good, but it's, you know, over 8,000. It's yeah. a death zone. Anything can happen. <clears throat> yeah. Putting their lie. You would have been put, I would have been putting a Sherpa because the Sherpa would definitely have given it to me and I wouldn't. Wow. Because that they that's the way they work. They would be there till the mm. end with you, which is like incredible, their kind of dedication. Mm. Even if I didn't want it, I wouldn't have had a choice in it. And they would have been putting their life at risk. And that's not worth climbing a big snowy hill for. Because, you know, those guys, it's their, it's their job, it's their livelihood, it's their lives, it's their families. It doesn't even bear mm. about. So, you you know, we've, we've talked a little about mother, a little bit about mother nature there. Um when did you get into surfing? So I got into surfing um, at the same sort of time, just towards the end of my Cheltenham preparation. I'd gone on a, on a holiday with one of my very good friends, Sophie Everard, who runs like a retreat for women that's like adventure training, surfing retreat in Costa Rica. And we reconnected after many years of like not sort of speaking. She worked for Oakley and, and I kind of, I'd known mm. from that and I sort of thought actually I'd quite like to do that so I went to Costa Rica and learned how to surf and I was immediately like wow this is amazing this is like this is a great new sport and I really really enjoyed it and it was challenging and very different from anything I've ever done and then I was obsessed with it. I was like, I really, really want to go surfing. I really want to go surfing all the time. And I think that year it does I that, doesn't it? <laughs> in like five different spots around the world with Sophie. Even like wow. at Christmas, went to Bali. We went to we went to Morocco and surfed Tagazoo. We'd been like everywhere. So we kind of travelled around and done lots of different things. Went to Portugal. That was lovely. So I kind of got really like. Went on five trips in one year to go surfing, and I, like, I need to do this more. Just fell in love with the sport, but then the mountaineering came in the way, and it was something that I always planned to do. You know, when I sort of got back to normal, and I hit a very low point on my return from Everest, um, due to the hypoxia, hypoxia, and also sort of my personal circumstances. Everything just got a bit too much, and you know, I went through a very, very sort of dark patch, and you know, I was really trying to find joy in my life and I couldn't for many, well, for, for a few months. And uh, one of the things when I felt my strength coming back is like, I really want to go surfing because that makes me so happy. Mm. And I really feel this would be a great thing to do right now. And everybody was like, are you serious? You know, you've <laughs> of severe depression and you want to go by yourself to Costa Rica. And I was like, I just feel like I need to do it. And it was weird because it's the first time in my life I'd ever listened to my gut and my instinct. I was like, I feel like I really ought to do this, although it's kind of terrifying. And I have like anxiety about being in public spaces as well. Like I'd had a few panic attacks 
Mm. And um, kind of, I couldn't even travel by tube. I was like, I can't do all this. Like, it, it was, it really affected me in many different ways. And uh, I took myself out to Costa Rica and stopped taking all the medication I'd been prescribed in one foul swoop. And it was the best thing I could have done because it was just, it, it really helped me to get a bit of routine, a bit of physical activity, um, be in nature because I lived in the jungle, surfed every morning, got up early. The guy who owned the B&B I stayed at, we, you know, we'd known him from previous trips and he, he's a great coach. So he's a, I mean, he rips, he shreds, he's amazing. And he kind of, he took me out in the morning. He'd be like, just beat it out, 7.30, go in. And some days I really didn't think I could manage it. And he'd be like, just get out there, like, just go for it. And um, after sort of a couple of weeks, because I stayed out for a month, I just thought, you know what? I think I'm genuinely feeling myself again. Like, I remember sort of being out back and it was sunset and it was beautiful. I was with two guys who were actually both Brits which was fun. One was a, one was a climbing instructor and the other one was a surf coach from Cornwall somewhere. And, um, it was very random. And I was just like looking back at the jungle and the sun setting. And I was like, there's nowhere else I'd rather be right now. Like this place is so beautiful. And they were like, we hear you. That's why we live here. And I was like, oh, it's just, and I just thought, you know what? I think I'm out of the woods here. And for me, like that connection with nature is so important and I realise so valuable with respects to healing and sort of your mental health. I, I just knew I needed to be there out of my normal environment in a very wild one. And, um, yeah, surfing. It's just like the, the kind of the healing power of the ocean. Sounds. Do you think it's... Um there's something do you think there's something innate to surfing mm. that is what allowed you to to kind of start that healing process or or is it was it more the fact that like the thing i've i've always found amazing about it is it like many sports forces presence you're mm. you're concentrating on what you're doing and nothing else and you have one job and it's to not drown and hopefully have fun yeah. um so do you think there's something innate in surfing that that makes it, um, you know, that little bit better for helping with your mental health and stuff? Or was it simply that you only had one thing to concentrate on mm. and that thing you had to concentrate on was something that forced presence? Yeah, I think that's... Does that make um, sense? I, I mean, what you... So many things you just said there re resonate. Um, in terms of surfing, it's a... It is a very immersive environment. Like you have to be a hundred percent focused on what you're doing, as it is very dangerous. And I think the mm. fact that it is dangerous, for you know, you have to be present because you know, as you say, you will if you get caught in a drop zone and a, a rogue step comes in, it's like being in a washing machine and it's terrible. It's absolutely terrifying. You do not like when you sometimes see this, you know, you'd be paddling out and then something starts rising and you think, oh, oh God, it's the no, worst, isn't it? No. <laughs> and it's like double the height of everything you've seen from yeah. you're paddling and you're like, I just have to get over it. And all you're thinking about is paddling like as effectively as possible, like digging as deep as you can. Your arms are burning and you're like, just get over the, and you sort of just get over the peak. And you're like, whew. So it, there is something about the danger of it that makes you present. You can't, your, your brain hasn't got time to process any kind of rubbish that's in there. I think when you're sat doing nothing and you're le left to your own devices and you're suffering with, you know, mental health issues, it's the worst thing you can do. It's, you, you feel like you've got no energy, but if you sit there and allow these thoughts to occupy that space, then you're you're kind of suffering mm. um, and, and static. And I think when you're doing a sport that requires an element of focus, there is an element of danger that forces you to focus. It's kind of the right recipe to keep you out of your own head and into mm. the moment. And that's Mother Nature she is bloody dangerous. And I think that's a big part of it. And I think with many of the, the things I do, there is an element of danger, definitely. 
but that is because it is intrinsically linked to focus. And I love being in a focused place, in a quiet place. Now, I'm not much good at meditating. I will listen to be led in a meditation. But for me, sport, and I've said this, like from the very beginning, sport is like my religion. When you're like really digging deep, you and you you can't think about how you feel. You might think about how your legs are feeling, but as soon as you engage with that, you're kind of lost your focus. You need to just, you know, you're looking at the finish line, you're looking at the top of the hill, you're, you're looking at the next fence coming towards you and all the other horses around you. You know, you're looking at the apex of the bend coming around the corner and, you know, it's kind of counter-steering. You're kind of always thinking of that in that moment, in that process, and there's a clarity and a clearness there that I really, really enjoy and appreciate. There's definitely something in that. So at some point, this uh, sort of evolved into something you, you clearly wanted to share. Um, how did you get involved with the WAVE Project and who are they? So the WAVE Project are a charity that um, I got involved with. I had talked about how surfing had been a big part of my recovery and they got in contact with me and said, you know, we basically provide six-week surf programs for children, young people who have come from very challenging environments, whether that's socially, whether that's mentally, whether that's mental illness um, or disability. So they kind of encapsulate surfing as a method of giving someone a new focus, a new lease of life, a new freedom from you know their, their their lives and the struggles that they face and I was like yeah I get that I feel that I, I kind of basically gave myself surf therapy and it worked so I kind of truly and like believe in this concept because I've been there and I felt it and it worked for me and you know the whole idea about what it provides, and they they you know it's been scientifically studied surfing as I mean stoke is an actual word, people. So feeling the stoke, really, a wave, yeah. This is like a scientific fact yeah. now. Yeah. So so basically feeling the stoke, catching that wave, because it requires an amount of resilience. Surfing, you know, you get knocked back, you get on that wave, you fall straight off it. You're like, oh. I keep paddling out. I'm just going to go for one more. I'm just going to get one more. I'm just going to go for one more. And you keep, you have to keep Every battling, battling <laughs> out because you just want to catch that one wave. And then when you do catch that wave, it's like, you and everyone else is like, and you just feel so good. And the kids really respond so well to it because you know, like the first time you stand up on a wave by yourself, even if it's just for a few seconds, it's like a huge yeah. sense of achievement. And the fact that it requires resilience builds confidence. And the element of danger also builds confidence and resilience because you get through it and people are there to look after you. Like they have volunteers mm. there that uh, one-to-one volunteers with the, with the kids. And um, they were like, would you like to be involved with our, with our charity? And I was like, yeah, yes, I would. Yes, please. Because I get I, there's anything I can do for you guys is promote that this is a recognized thing that really does work when when you're struggling and, and actually it's prescribed mm. by the NHS now surf therapy is it genuinely is yeah so the wow. project is prescribed to to young people and children who are suffering um as a, like a six-week program they'll take them out of the city they have a little bus that comes from london or to, goes to brighton or they'll arrange it and they've got projects all over the country they'll take a, a group of kids through a six-week program and they'll give them a mentor and they've noticed a massive difference and nearly i mean a large proportion of the young people that complete the six-week course choose to become volunteers so it, it's growing wow the charity grows through the people who have benefited wanting to pass it on that's something really beautiful mm. about that and i met some wonderful volunteers at their award ceremony they had they kind of recognize um the achievements of the people involved and the coaches and the volunteers and so many were like i know i came to this program and i did six weeks and i just couldn't believe how much it changed and it's just mm. so i mean incredible i, I, I just um, love it i really like that the nature of the kind of 
all right, just one more, just one more, just yeah. one more. And, and, and it is literally every session, isn't it? You're like, ah, just one more. It teaches you there's always that little bit more in the tank. Yeah. Like you always think you're done and then you're like 20 waves later or 20 attempts later at least. Yeah. I wasn't really done, was I? It, it teaches you a lot about your, uh, as you say, your just resilience. Because mm. it's hard. It's a difficult sport. I mean, sometimes yeah. you think you've got it. You know, you, I mean, how many waves do you attempt to catch and how many do you genuinely catch? <laughs> You know, this is this is there's a large proportion of waves you miss, miss time, fall off. Um, they don't come to anything. They're too fat. They're too soft. They don't yeah. really, they don't really give you what you what you're looking for. So you're kind of constantly searching and trying again and trying again. And then that one moment where you catch a really good one, then you're like, right, should I go in now? Because that was a really good one. Should I just go for one more? It's addictive. It really gives you like a sense of wanting to push yourself on and on and on and that's mm. great i mean that's a great thing about it there's there's so many other sports that could definitely provide that and i think we just need to explore that yeah i think i, I definitely think that's true i, I think i'm kind of a believer that, that all sports essentially do the same thing but they just do it in, with different methods you know yeah. they're all te- usually they're all teaching you the same thing in terms of the mental game but the it's just the physical discipline that's different um but certain sports do a much better job at making those mental lessons apparent really quickly. And I think surfing is one of those. I think danger is a big part of that though, because climbing, for example, is also yeah. used in a yeah. therapy. Because when you're hanging, even though you have a safety rope and you're attached and you know, you've got a harness on and everything, when you're if you're not used to heights and you're even six foot off the ground and you're thinking, mm. where's that next hand? That's a long way. Where is, it? Where is it? Oh, my gosh. My arms are aching. I can't hold on. You know, you don't want to fall. Even if you fall, you're safe. You know, if you're on a climbing wall, you're, you know you're going to be safe. You've got instructors there. But you, there is a still a sense of danger in what you're doing, and therefore you're in the moment. So I think definitely sports that have an element of danger that kind of make your brain working a slightly different way have a mm. superior quality i think when it comes to kind of giving you a positive mental i don't know a therapy I, th- I feel like i feel like it's just about facing fear at the end of the day mm. true that is that it's the, the experience of that danger it's it's putting yourself up against something you're scared of and then coming out of it and being like ah, i bossed it yeah <laughs> i just oh do you know what I'm, I talk about this all the time about pushing yourself and having courage now this is actually going back one of the things we talked about I couldn't didn't necessarily recognize my qualities I could only ever focus on my failures one thing I have realized now I'm a bit older and done a few things is I am actually quite brave I am actually quite a courageous person mm-hmm. and the first time I was described courageous was by Yogi Breisner, actually. And now I'm like, oh, I don't know. I've never really been called courageous before. Um, <laughs> all too skinny, too puny. Yes, yes, I've heard this. But courageous sounds like something I don't deserve to wear. And then I put it on and that's <laughs> how it felt. And I was like, yeah, I quite like that. And then I was like, I guess I am quite courageous. And then I thought, I'm going to own that word a little bit. And it got me thinking about what is courage at the end of the day? And for me, it kind of breaks down like this. You don't have to be born with it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to deserve it. You don't have to be owed it. Basically, if you want it, it's there. So just take it when that's possible. You've just got to put yourself in the place where you're going to say, you're going to commit to it. Yes, I'm going to do this. Yeah, it does scare me, but I'm going to do it and I'm going to give it my best shot. I'm not going to focus on the negatives. I'm going to only focus on the positives and what may be. And that in itself just is like, just blows my mind because we're It's just empowering, isn't it? But it's so powerful. I did my accelerated freefall course last summer, so I can jump out of airplane solo now. Wow. And... uh, You've got all the skills, haven't you? I, I, I did it with like a torn hip flexor, which was a bit silly. But nice. I made a lot of bum landings. But, so I, yeah, you on you stood at the end, the, the door of the plane, and the hatch is up, and the guy's like six seconds interval. Okay, six, go, and then go, and he's just signalling you out, and you're just wow. like, 
out in go and you jump and you're like I can't breathe I'm going at 200 and something 60 kilometers an hour and I can't breathe I'm falling towards the earth and you're looking at your altimeter and you do what you got to do somersaults and turns and stuff like that and then you think to yourself I'll just like chuck myself out of a plane 15 times in a week See, I mean, what's next? And it's just, I find it exhilarating. Yeah. Exhilarating. More people should try it. I think pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. Can I can just say, when you're sat there, cramped in a plane going up, your know, heart is like, please let the chute open. Please let it open. <laughs> make me have to pull the reserve chute. I don't want to do that. Oh, God. You know, and these thoughts, you can't stop them. But then you're thinking, yeah. look. But it's part of it, right? Yeah. It. It's just part of it. It's just part of it. And you think, well, people jump thousands and thousands and thousands of times and never have a problem. So if it doesn't, I know what I've got to do. I'm going to look, locate, pull, release. That's what we've got to do. I know what we've been through the drill many times. But then the kind of adrenaline of the moment is kind of, it's worth it. I think that's, yeah, that, that would actually be part of what I'd be afraid of, actually, is that the, the adrenaline would be so much that I wouldn't have the wherewithal to then think, oh God, I've got to do the thing. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, that's, in fact, that's probably where that self-doubt yeah. is actually creeping in. Because yeah. I'd be thinking, do I trust myself to do this? Yeah. Rather than, you know, just going, hell with it, let's go. <laughs> you would do it. You, you, I think it's just that focus though, because you would be focused at that moment. If it went wrong, you would yeah. be focused enough to do it. Yeah. You would do just you know what? That is... So I've, I've trained parkour for over 10 years now and that relates heavily to that because I, I talk about this all the time and I probably bore my friends with it, but I'll very often get really worked up about a jump I'm scared of doing when I, even though I know the reality is that if I somehow mess it up, which happens very, very rarely anyway, I'm yet to mess something up and not save it pretty well. Yeah. Like I, I do genuinely trust my body to just go, ah, oh, you'll work it out. Yeah. Like we, we can, we can just react if we get it wrong. Come on, we measure the distance incorrectly. Exactly. We'll, we'll just bounce it. It's fine. Yeah. Like it's not going to, it's not going to go that badly. But for some reason it's that, that is the thing. It's like, that's like the 5% that I need in, in terms of just sending it, yeah. just being willing to go. And before that 5%, without that 5%, it's that self-doubt going like, oh, but what if you don't commit? Yeah. And then with that 5%, it's, it doesn't matter if you don't commit because you'll fix it. Yeah. And, and it's just capturing that. And that's all you're trying to do every time. Yeah. Oh my God. I love parkour. I follow a few um, parkour artists, athletes. 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 They're everything. Do us some justice. Come on. <laughs> um, I know they're both. I'd say both. No, you're right. You're right. You're Humid right. and beautiful. And sometimes you see it. You yeah. Know, the human body moves in some remarkable waves. It blows my mind. I love it because you know what? It's um, most people think the human body can't do that. And then you see it and you go, man, that is incredible. Like in that mind over matter and some things are super dangerous and people just make it look effortless just blows my mind i actually think that would be quite a scary thing to do maybe i should take i'm not flexible enough i don't think i was about to say have you tried it oh no i think i think i'd have to do a lot of yoga and stretching before i did you don't you'd be surprised there, there are some I, really high level athletes that are not very flexible really because i just yeah, like yeah. apparently i fall quite well i've learned this over okay there you go. That's a good start then. Oh, well. I honestly um, I'd put my money on the fact you'd be a natural. <laughs> with the with the amount the amount of different sports that you that you've done and stuff like the and and obviously you've got the the attitude, the grit, the determination. I, yeah, yeah, maybe just like being a little bit <laughs> It's a great sport. I bet if you saw it in real life, it would be even more mind blowing. It's a bit like when you watch downhill skiing on the television, it never looks that steep. But then when you stand on the side of a course, you're like, what? Yeah. Well, the, the, the even crazier thing is when you then stand on the edge of the jump, like if there, if it's, if it's something that's high up, mm. you don't have to go high before it completely skews your ability to measure how far a thing is. Yeah. Like it's, it's a really strange oh, wow. experience actually. Yeah, it's cool. Um, let's talk about, so you've obviously you've had this incredible life so far and you've learned all these things. And then recently you've decided to sort of take the opportunity to pass that knowledge on. 
so you mentioned Sophie Everard earlier. Yay! You've uh, created this little, little, well, what's the word? What would you call it? Community. Community called the Wolf Club. Tell yes. Us what, tell us about the Wolf Club. Um, so we kind of wanted to, well, Sophie and I have a very unique relationship in terms of it's, I think we both aren't necessarily your typical, you know, 30 something year old females and just sort of kind of sometimes struggle to feel like we fit in. And we have done through our whole lives. I mean, she's super sporty and, um, you know, loves an adventure, travels a lot, surfs, does these adventure retreats for women. She's just, and, and I'm, you know, a lot of women our age are settled down and having babies and can't understand why on earth you'd want to do anything dangerous out of choice. <laughs> and she encourages me to be exactly what I want to be. And I adore her for who she is because she definitely has pushed me out of my comfort zone. I mean, she's the one that took me surfing for the first time. We have a very strong, like, female network uh, of really supportive women who I kind of get it. You know, you've been through some tough times and you kind of really feel like there's no hating or measuring against one one another, mm. which is such a, a modern day kind of downfall. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of pressure and social media pressure. and Constant comparisons. And, yeah. and everyone's comparing themselves. And we're just ourselves with one another. And the, 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 the women that we kind of try and surround ourselves with are the same. People that aren't, you know, necessarily conforming or don't feel they fit in. So we thought we'd create a little community of, for people who don't really feel like they fit in because they definitely fit in with us. And we just wanted to start, well, we've only just started, but create some podcasts um, on different subjects. And we have a few things in the pipeline and mostly to do with sort of confidence and fear and sort of following your own path and not worrying about not necessarily being what people expect you to be like just being yourself and that sounds really cheesy but we wanted it to be all inclusive mm. and that's something that we haven't necessarily felt in our lives if you know well amazing yeah, well i love it. it it sounds awesome and um, i have listened to the uh the first episode of the podcast and i can confirm it was very enjoyable um listening listening Although to you guys just chat about fear for half an hour terrible. say again the quality of recording was terrible but obviously well we're in, we're in exceptional circumstances aren't we so um before we wrap up we ask all of our guests this uh we're looking for three recommends from you one is a song or, or an artist at least one is uh film or tv and one is whatever you want it to be so that could be a book or an app or an activity jay morton said to get in a bin and fill it with cold water <laughs> <laughs> enough that. i've done enough of that thank you very much Jay. <laughs> what are you going for Okay, film or TV? I I, mean, I must be a bit slow off the mark with a lot of TV because I don't watch much TV, but I did watch all of three of the John Wick films back to back. Nice. Um, I basically want to be John Wick, I've decided, so I think they're yeah. a good shout if you haven't seen Keanu Reeves, um, man. He's the dream. Love it. Um, so that would be the film. I've actually been listening. Thanks. This is one of Sophie's recommendations. Nick Mulvey. Oh, yeah. Chill yeah. vibes. Beautiful voice. Very relaxed, very chilled. I just Super think he's chill, got a beautiful yeah. voice. He, he's, yeah, Love. he's a really good songwriter. Um, cool. And then your other. My other? Uh, I've been gardening a lot. I really enjoy it. And the fact that growing fruit and vegetables, there may be chance I could actually eat them. That's the best. Yeah. I made this. I helped make this. I ruined <laughs> it. It's kind of special. And there we have it. Do keep in mind, Victoria will be doing a live Q&A on our Instagram at Osprey Europe, where you can also get involved in the Osprey 14 challenge and win yourself some awesome prizes. Big thanks to VP for coming on and to you for listening. I've been your host, Marcus Brown, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Osprey Podcast.